from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our second text is from the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter, verses 7 through 13. It's the text we've been using throughout uh, this sermon series on the meaning and efficacy of prayer. Uh, Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, When you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, this, of course, is the last line of the prayer that Jesus taught us uh, to pray. And my sermon today marks the final installment in this series on the meaning and efficacy of prayer. In the first week, all the way back to uh, January the 9th, I said that this series is not an academic exercise. Its genesis is not necessarily found in in questions of the mind, questions of the intellect, but rather questions of the heart. And so the work that we've done throughout this series is not intended to simply address questions that echo in ivory towers, but to offer a word to those who find themselves on the ground those who know what it's like to be down on their sore and bruised and bloody knees in earnest prayer. The sermon series, as I said then and I'll say again, has been born out of the conversations, but more acutely, the prayers that I have heard you praying as individuals and as a congregation over these last several months, that what we do here is really a matter of the heart seeking God's wisdom as we study this most famous prayer that Christ taught us so that we know exactly what it means and what effect it has each and every time that we pray it. Uh, This past week I was uh, struck by a photo that I saw on Thursday. It depicts a Ukrainian woman in Kiev holding a Byzantine cross to her forehead Her eyes are closed in prayer. I wondered as I studied her face if perhaps she was praying the Lord's Prayer, repeating it over and over again. And then I wondered what it might be like for me or for us to pray in her shoes. To pray in her shoes, perhaps even to speak The last line of the prayer in particular, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What would it mean to pray 
the prayer with her in tandem. For even as the words would have left her lips, she would have been keenly aware that evil perpetrated by a godless and criminal imperialist regime had befallen her beloved, sovereign, independent, and democratic Ukraine. Her soul cries out in anguish. Her soul cries out in fear as that very prayer that we will pray today competes to be heard against the deafening sounds of air raid sirens and bombs and explosions. Deliver us from evil, she still prays. And as we pray today, we do so in solidarity with her. We t- and we contemplate what it means that Jesus invited us to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We will think about the meaning and efficacy of this line of the prayer. But as we do, we must proceed with empathetic mindfulness and great caution and care. Lest we dishonor this woman and all those who are praying this prayer in a time of peril, a time of war, a time of great trial and tribulation. Let us remember her throughout this sermon, and let us remember her as we pray even now. Let us pray. Lord, break open this word afresh to us so that we would hear exactly what we need to hear, that we would be formed in the way of Jesus Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen. In the story uh, from the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel, we're reminded of the time, and many of you know this story, the time when Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Don't miss that point of the story as we think about what it means to pray, lead us not into a time of trial, knowing that the Holy Spirit is the one that has led Jesus into this time of temptation. Jesus is going there to pray, he's going there to fast, and he's going there to prepare for his earthly ministry. As this 40-day retreat comes to uh, an end, uh, the diabolos, that's the Greek word for this entity that engages him, the diabolos tests Jesus to prove as to whether or not he truly is the Son of God. Now I'm going to address this trial in just a few moments. I'm going to talk about this temptation. But first let me say something about this character we meet in Luke 4 called the diabolos in Greek. It's the name that we, more times than not, translate to the English word devil. I think it's important that we consider this name, that we consider this entity as we consider this last line of the Lord's prayer. The word itself, diabolos, literally means accuser. It means backbiter. It means slanderer. It is a being or anyone who is slandering or accusing God's elect. As we look at it throughout the scriptures, we see this word emerge in both the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament in its Greek form, uh, talking about those who would try to disrupt the fidelity of God's people. 
those who are trying to be obedient to God are oftentimes engaged by this backbiting, by this accusation, by this slander. Now, I'm quite sure that some of you noticed a discrepancy, and good for you if you noticed it, a discrepancy in what we find in the NRSV translation of the Matthew 6.13 text and what appears in my sermon title. The scripture from Matthew says, Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Whereas my sermon title says, Deliver us from evil. Which of course is what we will pray in just a few moments. We pray the Lord's Prayer in this way. We don't pray, deliver us from the evil one. We pray, deliver us from evil. In the Greek text of Matthew 6.13, the word for evil is preceded by a definite article. So it literally reads in English, deliver us from the evil. Deliver us from the evil. And because of this definite article, some interpreters think that it should be translated as the evil one. That even though the word one is not referenced there, because there's a definite article, people have translated it as the evil one. And if you're one of those people, God bless you. That's more than fine. But I'm going to read it a little bit differently. Others like me, and even as we pray it each and every week, will rather translate it as deliver us from evil. And the primary rationale for this interpretation is that Matthew actually uses the word diabolos, in his 28-chapter gospel. He uses it in different places. He ascribes this word to, to, to talk about uh, this entity, this being, this accuser, this tempter. And so if in the prayer Jesus was referring to the devil, it's more than likely that Matthew would have used the Greek word diabolos. He would have used it in this prayer the way that Luke did in chapter 4, but he doesn't. Matthew uses a different word, poneros, which is translated as wicked, as malice, as bad, or in this case in English, as evil. Right? So Matthew could have chosen to use the word diabolos, but didn't uses the word evil, and that's why I'm going to be referring to this line by simply saying, deliver us or rescue us from evil and not the evil one. Now, there's simply not enough time uh, today or maybe even to fill a whole sermon series to do a biography of the devil. Uh, Maybe one day we'll do a, a sermon series, maybe in the heat of the Atlanta summer, uh, where we'll talk about the devil Uh, whether the devil is a real being, a real entity, or simply a metaphor to personify sin and and wickedness. But uh, we have maybe time down the road for that. For now, for our time now, I want to hone in on this understanding of this particular translation, rescue us, deliver us from evil. So I want to go back to Jesus in the wilderness. The Diabolos is trying to bring down God's Son, and Jesus resists. Many of you know this story. Jesus proves himself to be obedient to God. He's faithful to God and who God's calling him to be. Now, interestingly, the temptation story is also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4. It's two chapters prior to the chapter that we're in right now, chapter 6. It's only one chapter behind the whole Sermon on the Mount, which chapter 6 is also a part of. 
I bring this up because Jesus, after this temptation, he immediately launches into his ministry. And so I want you to remember that on his mind, fresh on his mind, is this temptation. Fresh on his, his mind is this trial in the wilderness. It's not something that happened long ago. I mean, think about when you work out. You go for a run or you lift some weights. You're helping a friend move. And you do that and the next day you wake up and your shoulder hurts or your hip hurts or your muscles are tight. Right? You know that feeling. You know what that, that feels like. Because it just happened the day before. You know why you feel that way. And Jesus has just come off the temptation. He's just come off the trial. And he's saying, look, I know what this is like. You're going to want to pray, lead us not into the time of trial. Because the trial is hard. When I was a preteen, I remember uh, going to an amusement park as part of an organized uh, school trip. There was a ride at, at the park called the Rotor. Now, some of you may have seen it under a different name, and when I describe it, you may say, oh yeah, I remember that ride, and perhaps you've even ridden on that ride. It's a large, uh, upright barrel uh, that rotates at 33 revolutions per minute, right? Riders get in, they stand against the wall. A child earlier asked their parents, were they strapped in? No, we weren't strapped in. This was the 80s, right? <laughs> we were all along the wall, right? People would be along the wall, and as the barrel would rotate, it would create this centripetal force, and as it reached its, its peak speed, about three Gs, the floor, remember this? The floor would then drop, but you would still, because you're going so fast in the force, you would be stuck to the wall and begin to freak out, right? The ride would eventually slow down, and as it slowed down, the, the floor would begin to come. So as you would slide down the wall, your feet uh, would have a very short drop. Now, I had never ridden the rotor before, and as I was waiting in line, the previous ride came to an end, and stumbling out from that ride was one of my classmates. Uh, he had lost all color in his face. He was literally sobbing. I mean, he was crying. And he looked me in the eye and he said, don't do it, Tony. Don't do it. You're not going to survive. And as he was getting out the word survive, he became sick all over the exit ramp. And that's, sorry, but that's what happened. And that's all I needed. That's all I needed. That was it. I got out of line and I, I didn't ride the ride. Interestingly, the man who invented the rotor was a, a German, and <laughs> this is ridiculous. He debuted it at Oktoberfest in 1949. With all that beer drinking, can you imagine the scene, right? I mean, Jens, I don't know. That's a bad idea. <laughs> There's a connection here to what Jesus was asking us to pray. And the warning my friend gave me, which deterred me from riding the ride. Jesus knows what a real time of trial looks like. He knows. He's ridden the ride. Right? It's fresh on his, on his mind. And, and this trial, which was not a temptation to sin, but it was a trial to prove his fidelity to God. To prove that he was utterly obedient 
to God, it kind of functions like a day of reckoning. And what we confess as Christians is that Jesus Christ is the only one who is truly obedient. That Jesus Christ is the, is the only one who can pass that test. He is the only one who can survive the ride. He's the only one who can be perfectly obedient to God, even to the point of death on a cross, says the Apostle Paul. To connect the dots here, he's the only one who won't get sick. He's the only one who can keep his integrity. This part of the prayer invites us into a deeper transparency with God by admitting that the reason we ought to pray this line and ask to be spared from a time of testing because we fail these kinds of tests. That's why Jesus is saying it. Don't be led into a time of trial because you don't have what it takes. This prayer then is prayed in humility. Lead me not into a time of trial because as a sinful human being, I don't have what I need to pass. Think about the the disciple Peter. You remember him? Confident Peter. The Lord's Supper on the last night that Jesus was with his friends when he broke bread together, the night that he'd be betrayed by Judas, arrested by the Roman authorities. Jesus said to those disciples, including Peter, you will all become deserters of me on this night. To which Peter replies in great confidence, Though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. Peter said to him, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so did all the disciples, says the gospel writer. They said the same thing. It's almost like they're praying, Lord, lead me into the time of trial. Because I got this. Lead me into temptation because I can prove myself worthy. But of course, that's not what happens in the story. Of course, Peter denies Christ. He fails. So do all the other disciples. When the time of trial came, when the test came to prove his obedience to God, he failed. And partly he failed, I think, because he put his trust in himself. I can do this, so lead me into a time of temptation. Let me show you what I got. And friends, we're Peter, plain and simple. That's why we have to pray this prayer. We want to avoid a time of trial lest we put our trust in ourselves and believe our own press that, that we can pass based on our own piety, based on our own faith, based on our own moral courage or fortitude. For Jesus Christ is the only one that can pass this kind of test. He's the only one whose faith has been proven true. Remember what it says in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect been tested as we are, yet without sin. That's why the Apostle Paul, throughout his writings, continues to emphasize that faith is really trusting in the faith of Jesus Christ. It's not our own faith that we trust in. We trust in the faith of Jesus Christ. But there's a little 
clause in this prayer as it ends. If we do happen to be led into a time of trial, right? Do you catch how this ends, this prayer? Lead us not into a temptation. Lead us not into a time of trial. But if it does happen, deliver us from evil. Please deliver us from evil. Now this Greek word that we translate as rescue or deliver uh, encapsulates two different meanings. It means to not only be rescued from danger or wickedness or evil, but rescued towards something. Not just away from something, but, but actually toward something. It has a double move. One of my favorite films is uh, called The Mission. Some of you have, have seen it. It came, uh, speaking of the 80s, all the way back in 1986. And it stars a younger uh, Bobby De Niro, Jeremy Irons, and, and Liam Neeson. And it chronicles uh, the work of 18th century missionaries in South America. And early in the film, you meet De Niro's character, a man by the name of Mendoza. And he is a slave trader. Um, and he is... Uh, dealing in the slave trade. He's going to indigenous tribes in this part of South America, uh, and he is arresting them and selling them to Europeans. At the same time, there is a Jesuit missionary group that is seeking to bring the good news to these tribes through medicine and health care and love and education, and there's this conflict between the slave traders and these Jesuit priests. Well, De Niro has been out on a, on, a, on a slave trading expedition, and he comes back to find that his brother is having an affair with his fiance, and they duel, and he kills his brother, and he's put into prison. And Jeremy Irons, who's the leader of this Jesuit uh, group of Jesuit priests, rather, comes and evangelizes him, and he, he invites him to turn to God, to turn away from his sin, to repent of his sin, and to become a Jesuit priest. What is more, to stop the slave trade, to stop being a part of that evil uh, and vile entity. And that's what De Niro does. He becomes a Jesuit priest. As they make their way up to one of these indigenous tribes that live above the falls where they're going to live and work and befriend and love, part of his penance, De Niro's penance, is that he has to carry all the armor and the weapons of war that he utilized in the slave trade, that he even utilized to kill his own brother. It's attached to a rope and a net that captures all of this armor, and it's about 20 yards long, and, and he has to make his way through the jungle and up the waterfall carrying this armor as a reminder of how sin weighs you down. He gets to the very top where the uh, leaders of this particular indigenous tribe come, and it's a young leader, comes to him and recognizes that it's Mendoza, recognizes him as a slave trader, and he pulls his knife on him, and he puts it at his neck. And there's a moment of suspense waiting. What is he going to do? Is he going to kill this slave trader? And sure enough, he moves down to his ankle, and he takes the knife, and he cuts the rope, and he pushes all the armor down the waterfall. A literal liberation where the wickedness and the evil is now gone. But he now moves toward the tribe and he embraces that leader in tears and commits his life to defending them. See, this word, what it means is it doesn't just mean moving away from evil, but it also means moving toward the good. There's also one other subtlety in this particular word. It also means that when you are delivered from wickedness to good, 
you are also delivered to the one who is rescuing you. You're also delivered to the one who is rescuing you. Imagine a child who's fallen out of raft in class four or five rapids and, and the mother jumps out to save the child. She grabs the child, pulls the child out of the water and then puts the child on a rock and then gets back in the boat. No, not at all. She pulls the child to herself and then climbs into the boat or into, onto the rock, onto the shore, and holds the child close to her breast. That's what God does when God rescues. That's what this word means. Not just delivering us from evil and not just delivering us towards something that's good, but, but, but bringing us to God's very self, even in the midst of evil. I'm thinking again of the woman from the photo with the Byzantine cross. When we pray in unison with her, deliver us from evil, we're asking to be rescued into the arms of God. In the face of peril, in the face of wickedness, in the face of evil, there is no better place to be than in the arms of God. Having faith in the faith of Jesus Christ and remembering all the while that in life and in death we belong to our eternal creator. Praying this line of the prayer, I hope, gives us that boldness and that bravery and that confidence to act and to participate in the activity of God, which in these days, I believe, means to defend the defenseless. It means to befriend and support those who mourn, including some of our own members, members who are here right now in worship, who have family and friends in Ukraine, in the heart of this conflict. It means, I believe, as a church and as individual Christians, and I do not intend to mince words here, it means to speak out against anyone who sympathizes or supports godless imperialists here or abroad, whether they be pundits, politicians, or even former presidents. It means finding solidarity with those who work for the causes of diplomacy, conscious capitalism, peacemaking, democracy, self-determination, and freedom, remembering that we are emissaries of Christ's peace and seek the good of all in cooperation with powers and authorities in politics, culture, and economics. We also fight against pretensions and injustices when these same powers endanger human welfare, all the while remembering that our strength is in the confidence that God's purposes, rather than the schemes of evil people, will ultimately prevail. And in that truth, friends, I hope we have the confidence and bravery to pray this prayer and to embrace what it really means and what it is calling us to do as God is actively working, even in the midst of evil, to put you and me and this entire world to rights. Amen.
sing. 